It seemed like a good idea at the time. Three days in ultimate seclusion. The flakes that started to fall on your way were hardly worth notice. But now the polar vortex is locked over Canada and, as the drifts creep up to the windows, you feel foolish being miles and miles from any neighbor or route plowed by a road commission. The generator ran out of gas yesterday. But there's plenty of lamp oil and wood for the stove. Surprisingly, your call for help was met with something like joy. An acquaintance has a snowmobile with enough gas for a one-way trip. They're bringing people, food, supplies, beverages, and, if they heard your plea as the last milliamp slipped from your phone, games. That's right, soon you'll be Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon. Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon is a discussion with Northwest Michigan residents about life, the pursuit of happiness, and the four tabletop games they'd like to get stuck with in a fictitious snowpocalypse. I'm your host, Jim Maratsky, and today we're joined by Benjamin Ludwig. Ben, welcome to Snowmageddon. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Super. Well, the first question that I always ask of my guests is, you play tabletop games and you've developed and played digital games. Was it difficult for you to choose these analog games, and, uh, and what criteria did you use? I just sat back and closed my eyes as I leaned back, and I pictured the situation. It was a role-playing experience for me. I said, I'm in Snowmageddon here. I've got some people that I love around me, and what are we going to play? What is going to have some lasting value, and what are my favorites? And I took some of those, because some of my favorites don't have lasting value, and some of the things that have lasting value I don't love. So I just kind of synthesized those two lists and came up with the one that I did. I guess a secondary question is, is a scenario like this being out in the middle of nowhere, uh, stuck for a time, is that something that would apply to you? Would you do that? Or, or is this a uh, way outside of, of anything you'd be interested in? It's not outside of what I'd be interested in. When I got married, actually, we got a chalet way out, you know, 50 miles east of here because, uh, we were getting married in this area, even though I didn't live here at the time. And all I did was I brought a bunch of games to the chalet. And I said, you know, this is my bachelor party is going to be a gaming bachelor party. So I would say that it's not at all outside the realm of possibility. Wow. That's great. That's great. Okay. Well, let's jump right in here. Um, the first game that you've decided to bring is a classic. Uh, came out of Central Asia in the early centuries of the Common Era and uh, now is played all over the world and that is chess. Uh, why do you hope this is with you in Snowmageddon? Well, chess is the perfect game in so many ways, I feel. I'm kind of an enemy of randomness, as uh, you will find. Uh, there is very little randomness on this list of games that I gave you, because I like to win because I deserve to win and lose because I deserve to lose, not because the dice fell one way or the other. And chess is so perfect because every move you make and every move they make is filled with intention. And you can have almost a conversation uh, through this. I, my, one of my personal instructors, so to speak, in chess is Josh Waitzkin. Do you know Josh Waitzkin? I do not. Have you ever heard of the film uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer? Yes. Yeah, he, that was a film about him. Okay. That was his biopic when he was a, a child. He was the he was the main character of that story, or you know, rather, there was a child playing him in in that. And he is incredibly brilliant, um, a real 
American genius. And he, when he, you can get these lessons in games about chess from him. And he starts off with, don't miss the connections between chess and life. And he says things like, welcome to the black and white jungle. You know, he, he says, everything you do here, the more you get good at chess, the more you will see the parallels between chess and life. And the more you get good at life, the more you'll see the parallels between life and everything you do within it. And I believe in that. I believe in that hugely. Mm. So, so I just love chess. It's like a conversation between two people. And I feel like over time, it would be a great thing to be stuck with because it's simple enough for almost anyone to learn in time. And yet, it has infinite depth, and I would just love to have that with me. So that makes sense to me, um, but I was curious. Chess, to me, seems like more of a lifestyle, and I guess that's what you're kind of saying. Uh, I, I find chess these days kind of intimidating or something like that. Like you have – can you – I guess my question is, can you play chess casually, or, or does it require study and contemplation and philosophy and – everything to go along with it. You know, I've been teaching for 12 years at uh, the Cranbrook schools down south in Detroit, and, and they did something interesting. They put a bunch of chess sets in the library, just at tables for kids to sit down at. And the students, uh, the reaction was huge. Every time I went to the library, there'd be people playing chess. And it was entirely casual. We have 15-minute passing times there because there's two campuses, which is enough time for a quick game of chess between a couple of 10th graders. And it's wonderful. It is not at all. There's The professional chess, of course, is a lifestyle. But just like anything, if you're going to go pro, yeah, okay, there's a lot of you know, things you're going to have to do there. But if you're not going pro, if you're just enjoying it, absolutely. It is a casual experience, something I just quickly sat down with my father over a board of chess or or someone else. And e even sometimes when I know I'm going to lose because the person is so much better than me, but it's still going to be interesting. The question is, how am I going to lose? And you never want to lose the same way twice. And if you never lose the same way twice, eventually you win. <laughs> okay. So you have to pay attention to what you're doing and, and learn every time. So mm -hmm. that's good. Okay. Sorry. So let's let's talk a little bit about beginnings. If you uh, brought games to your uh, to your bachelor party, how did you get started with games? What where did that come from? Well, I've always loved games. I've always been a, sort of an intellectual person. Even when I was a kid, I was very intellectual. I loved to read books. I loved to learn about new things. I loved to watch documentaries, and. I was a little bit socially uncomfortable, I would say, with other kids. I didn't find interacting with them to come easy to me. They weren't into the things that I was into. But the nice thing about a game is that when you sit down at a game, there's this universal rules that gets put in front of everyone, and suddenly everyone is focused and everyone is moving, even if you're playing against them, together and in these ways that have patterns and make sense to me. You know, so that's one of the reasons I love games because I could get some kids around a table. This is back when I really was a kid, like when I'm nine or 10, and they would all be engaged in this, doing the things that I understood that I loved. So I think that's probably why I got into games. Uh, I also got into digital games because, once again, dealing with other kids is a little awkward for me. And so 
I liked this solo experience that I could have with a game and a computer. I had one of those Simon things as a kid. You know those Simon? Yes. Uh, and that was my first game ever. And I really loved it, even though it's the simplest little piece of tchotchke, you know, you could ever want. That's the one where it, it lights up and you have to press the same pattern that it played to you? That's right. Okay. Exactly. It, a light and a sound. I use the sounds because more auditory, but yeah. That's great. So how did, uh, how did you get, you said you were teaching at Cranbrook. What, uh, tell me the path of how you got to there. Well, I, again, being an intellectual kind of kid, the path of the professor was a natural for me. Uh, I went to University of Michigan, uh, graduated class of 2000, and then I went to University of Chicago to do my graduate work. What, uh, what fields were you studying or what were your degrees in? Well, my degree in U of M was actually Japanese language and literature. Uh, I had a Probably my best friend when I was a very small child was a, a Japanese girl who was living here because her, her father worked uh, around here. And I just, I, she was the best friend I ever had. So when I went to college, I took Japanese kind of in her honor and I wound up making it into a whole major. I lived in Japan for a year. It was a wonderful experience. But my graduate degree is in uh, world religious studies. So religious traditions. I tend to specialize in Eastern traditions. My dad used to read the Tao Te Ching uh, to me when I was a kid, and I developed a fascination for East Asian philosophy from that. Hmm. Where, where, um, so just stepping back a little farther, why was your dad reading you the Tao Te Ching? Well, my father was, uh, you know, he's a Harvard uh, businessman, mathematician, and um, he's always lived himself a very intellectual life, and he had as many people did back in the 60s, a time of discovery. And uh, he brought a lot of that stuff that flooded into America back in the 60s, a lot of this more, um, these these global philosophies, the, the Beatles brought in some Hinduism, you know, and uh, you've got people like Alan Watts and, uh, um, and others bringing in Zen. Uh, so, you know, those are things that he internalized. And when he saw that, I was fascinated by those things. He made sure to give me a little education on them. So what kind of classes did you teach at, at Cranbrook? Well, my most popular class, which I also taught at Oakland University, was uh, in world mythology. And that was uh, as much of a teaching uh, exercise as it was a role-playing exercise, actually. We, I really try to enter into to the myths when I, when I teach them. And uh, I also taught Eastern traditions, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Sikhism, that, that kind of thing. Where does mythology end and religion begin? They don't have a clear line. Mythology is a word that we use usually for ancient religions, um, but they were religions just the same as uh, any other. I would say that there's certainly a thing as Christian mythology, and that's basically the lore you know, like the lore behind any religion is its mythology, uh, its cosmology. And so with that, you can really feel a sense for the whole universe. And that's what I love about mythology. You, you can feel the, these are the, the figures, these are the ideas that whole civilizations, uncountable millions of people throughout time, believed that this is how the universe worked. This is the most important thing in the universe. This is the face of the universe. And so that 
captivated me from an early age. I just loved learning about it. And we didn't have, when I was a kid, uh, Percy Jackson. We didn't have Harry Potter to introduce us to all these mythological concepts. Um, so I was reading them maybe a bit more dryly, and yet that left more room for my imagination. I, I loved to imagine the, the myths because we didn't have quite as many resources as we do today about them. Huh, that's great. Well, um, let's move on to your second game. Chess came out of Central Asia uh, and moved its way east as well as west. And uh, this is a chess variant that uh, appeared in Japan, uh, I think around the 10th century, I read. And uh, that's called Shogi. And uh, so tell us why you'd like to have this along. When I was living in Japan in 1999, I encountered Shogi. And shogi, um, for those who are not familiar with it, is played on a, on a larger board than, than chess. And even increasing 8x8 eight eight to 9x9, nine nine, that's, you know, a 25% increase uh, of the board size, which gives you more room to run around on and more pieces to fill that board. And it's got a baffling, baffling assortment of, of pieces that do not work in the relatively simple way that the pieces in chess work. Many pieces in shogi can only move forward or backward, which is interesting. Um, how do you get a piece that only moves backward, you know, out, out there? Because it's got this interesting mechanic that any piece that you've captured, you can drop back down onto the board on an empty space, which, wow, can you imagine chess? If you, if you capture a queen, you can drop it back down on the board on an empty space? That would change everything about it. And when I saw Shogi, and when I played Shogi in Japan just a little bit, I thought the depth of this game is Marianan. It's like the Mariana Trench. It's incredible. It's, I could probably study this game for the rest of my life and never really get to the depths of of, of the, the deep strategies here. And, and Shogi is like chess is in Russia, you know, sort of a, an institution, something people can get really serious about. But you can also play it like chess, um, casually. But boy, man, it, I chose that one because I would love to learn it. And if I was trapped, if I was snowbound, I think learning something new would be something that would help keep me sane. So shogi and its incredibly steep learning curve is something that I think would be a good thing to have there. And, and I think that with the people that I play chess with, there'd be a special kind that would want to take on shogi. Why do you think shogi hasn't really made its way west? I've only learned about it recently, and that kind of surprised me. It's staggeringly complex. I, I, I can't even begin to say all the possibilities there are in this thing. And because of that, I think it's intimidating. Chess is intimidating enough, you know? Like, people look at chess and like, wow, this is a really complicated game. But of course, all adjectives are relative, and complicated takes on a whole new meaning with shogi. And I think people look at that and they go, wow, you know, all these pieces identified by Chinese characters, not by shape. You know, all the, all the, all the shogi board pieces have the same or at least a very similar shape. It's what character is painted on them, which is something that seems, you know, of course, very alien to us. And I think part of chess's appeal is that these shapes have universal meaning. And you're like, okay, this is a knight. This is a... Everyone 
and the world can call those a different thing. But in Shogi, you have to learn all the characters and all the names and all the moves and all this kind of thing, and it's it's difficult. It's difficult to do. I think it's too much. It's not casual enough for us. Who plays Shogi in Japan? You know, all sorts of people. Um, there's like a, a women's league and a men's league and all, all these kinds of things for for playing Shogi. I played a video game recently in which um, one of the one of the main supporting characters was a young woman who was rising in the shogi ranks, and there was a lot of talk about uh, um, the politics of shogi, but also the strategies of shogi and those sorts of things. So that's and that's something in in Japan, which I think most people are, are aware of the same way that most people in Russia uh, are aware of how chess uh, things work, or or America, perhaps. So, how did you find yourself in Japan? Well. Like I said, I had this childhood friend uh, who, uh, Natsuko, who I, I've always felt very close to, even though I only knew her as a, as a small person. I was able to find her again and uh, hang out with her in Japan. It was great. Um, and that f culture really fascinated me. When I got to Michigan, I had come through the Traverse City public schools. And of course, there's no Japanese in the Traverse City public schools, or at least there wasn't back then. And I suspect there isn't now either. So I took German which was something that I already had some familiarity with uh, for, through my family. My my grandparents spoke Yiddish, which was close enough to German. And uh, so I, I used German here when I was at Traverse City Central. But then when I got to college, I said, I want a new horizon. I want something new to open up here. So I decided I was going to take either Ojibwe or Japanese. And in the end, I flipped the coin and it came out Japanese. And it became my whole major, even though it was just a decision on how to take the class that would fulfill my language requirement. You never know where these things are going to lead. So I figured if I'm going to have a degree in Japanese, it would be criminal for me not to have been there for a good amount of time. So I became a foreign exchange student. It was a great deal. I was a guest of the Japanese government. They paid me. I walked away with a profit, actually, from it because uh, of their generous stipends that they that the government gave for this program, the Japan in Today's World program, even though most of the other students uh, walked away penniless. I, I I was rather monkish. I sat in my room. I just bought a game every once in a while. And so I had a lot of money left. What? Uh, how difficult was it to get from a Western mindset into an Eastern mindset if you're digging that deep into a culture? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really tough question. You know, we, we get into the question of, is there such a thing as a Western and Eastern mindset? You know, of of course, that's that's a, a very simple way to look at things, and it's I, I wouldn't say it's it's always uh, accurate. I, I would and I would say that America and Japan are very independent and idiosyncratic cultures, and so I would say it's more about getting out of an American mindset and getting into a Japanese one than out of a Western and into an Eastern one. And most of the time, it was extremely pleasant. Japan was a place where you don't need a car. Public transportation is perfect and cheap and on time. The whole nation is clean and beautiful and high-tech. And there's the food is unbelievable in its quality and diversity. It's filled with considerate uh, you know, people who think of politeness and uh, propriety of behavior as a virtue, which is not a strong virtue in America. Uh, it's stronger maybe in Canada. Um, and 
So I've always wanted my country to be more polite and, you know, serve delicious, tasty food and have public transit that is clean and, and cities that are clean and all this kind of thing. So I felt like I was in some ways kind of in paradise when I was in in Japan, I was like, wow, this is a place that makes sense to me. This is a place where the road crews work between midnight and 5 a.m. and never get in people's way. This is a place where, you know, the laws have been very, um, you know, recently thought out and, and that has evolved it to this state. So, you know, I think that it was much easier for me than for some. I got a reputation actually when I was in Japan for not acting like an American meaning not being brash and overwhelming. And and instead of befriending the other Americans on the program, I befriended the Europeans. And uh, they would introduce me in Japanese, Japanese people. They'd say, this is Ben. He's an American, but he's more like a European. And I learned to take that as a compliment in some ways. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Um, so as a student of philosophy, can you, and maybe this is too big of a question to, to throw out, but can you kind of characterize a difference between the philosophical traditions there and and what you know what you learned before you went out that way the difference between what i learned about it and the actuality of it or no the the just i guess i'm just mostly interested in cultural differences what you know what what's what what would be some major philosophical you know like a western philosophical the tradition major, versus an eastern philosophical tradition i would say the biggest one and and this is a huge one is that Japan and to a certain extent Eastern Asian societies like like China and Korea and and Taiwan have as perhaps their first virtue order order is comes first social order and that is something which they believe it is appropriate to sacrifice uh, freedom and personal expression sometimes. Um, you know, hopefully the two can be accomplished together, but if they can't, order wins. America's the reverse. In America, um, liberty, freedom is the ultimate virtue. And uh, the worst thing you can do to, is tell somebody you can't do whatever the heck it is you want to do for the sake of a social order. So that was something that I'd always taken for granted. In America, you grow up singing songs about liberty and, you know, all this kind of thing. And it's something that you get instilled as nobody should ever tell anyone else what to do pretty much, you know, short of felony level crimes. You know? and, and in Japan, it's not that way at all. It's no, everyone should definitely tell you what to do and you should definitely do that. And uh, that's, that's the biggest Thing. And, and and that's hard, by the way. There are some Japanese people who have what I would call an American soul and who really want to express themselves and step out of line and do what nobody else does and ruffle you know a few feathers. And they have it real hard uh, there, whereas they'd have it pretty easy uh, in America with expressing that part of themselves. And uh, with me, it was a very interesting meditation, my time there on order versus freedom, these two forces which are often at odds with each other and say, I, I stepped back and said, well, I'm in a country now that embraced order. Look how clean, look how safe, look how uh, beautiful 
it, it is. And it taught me not to abandon the concept of liberty as a supreme virtue, but still to understand the other side of that argument and say, you know, we like to tell the story about people crushing individual freedoms just because evil. <laughs> but that's never the case, not ever. It's always order versus freedom. So that, that I think, the American freedom versus the Japanese order was the biggest philosophical difference, and that touched every level of Japanese society and American society, and that allowed me to see American society more clearly. Hmm, that's interesting. Thanks. Uh, so I have a question I wrote down here because uh, since you're into philosophy and thinking about that, that I'm curious to see what you have to say about it. But it seems to me that our perception of reality is really under siege these days um, from quantum physics telling us that, you know, matter is, is so friable. And then uh, to psychology research that says our brains are just interpretation engines and we throw away so much of what we perceive and then uh, our current political situation where, you know, this chaotic view of norms. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious to know what you would say of, is philosophy, uh, this kind of, you know, defined way of looking at the world even relevant anymore in a world like that? Yeah, I would say that it's especially relevant because philosophy can give us, you know, philosophy itself literally means love of wisdom, uh, philo, love, Sophia, wisdom. And wisdom is basically life advice. And it most of philosophy doesn't get deep into how things work or what things are. It has to do with how one should live, how one should experience what this is. And it doesn't matter if quantum physics says, oh, this is this or this is that. We still are left with the question, how should I live? And in that question, how should I live, philosophy has answers. And those answers tend to be, if I could distill all of, all of uh, the philosophy that I've learned worldwide into one thing, uh, it would be um, the idea of long-term good over short-term good. Most, most of, the, of the wisdom that I have learned says, don't get too caught up in what is right around you or what is right in your face. Try to zoom out and get a wider perspective on things. And this is so helpful in life because whatever rock you've been bashing your head up against, suddenly you see, oh, there's a way around that rock. I was so zoomed in, it looked like a wall, but it's not. It's a boulder. I can go around it. Or you can say, all of this stuff is raging around me, and it always will, and this is all there is. No, it isn't. Yes, American society is insane at the moment, with, I would say, both sides of the political spectrum having gone a bit bonkers. But philosophy helps you zoom out from that and say, this too will pass. This too will... Um, will change. And because of that, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly important. When I got very disheartened at times, I would pull out a copy of Marcus Aurelius's at school, between classes. I just thumbed through it. Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Are you familiar with that book? No. Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor who wrote a book called The Meditations. And it was just his personal thoughts about life and the world. And he was an incredible philosopher. Uh, I heard that um, uh, Clinton, and I'm not sure, but I, but I, I also heard Obama. I was sure about the Clinton. Clinton said so himself. But they both had copies of that book, and they both 
turned to them when they felt down because this was a person in a position of supreme power, but also a thoughtful person who was saying to himself, today I'm going to meet with some real jerks and I, I'm going to get uh, there. I'm going to meet with people who hate me for, for, for the wrong reasons, you know, for people who have, you know, skewed viewpoints about this and that. And he says, but I'm still going to be grateful for this day. And he would write whole chapters in it about just someone in his life he wanted to honor and talk about all the things they'd done for him. That's wisdom right there. That's looking at the good as well as the bad. In America, because we're so focused on justice, we tend to focus on the bad. We tend to focus on the evil because that's de destroying that as justice. But that's not how I think a really balanced person focuses. If you focus on evil, you see it everywhere and you become well, you become jaded and hateful. Um, but if you also see the good, then it's a very different thing. And I'm not saying that I'm an enlightened person or that I always get to keep the good in mind or the bad in mind when I, when I should, but I do see life as a balancing act. I don't see it as my favorite virtue, which is losing and that's tragic, da da da. I, it's, I see it as this is all part of the, part of the game, so to speak. Well, I, I appreciate that hopeful message. That's, that's good. It's uh, something we all need to focus on these days. So let's, uh, your third game, uh, speaking of good and evil, is, uh, is kind of more of a, a series of games, I guess. Yes, it is. Uh, the, the first one came out around 1983 and was published by a company called Decipher. And that's uh, How to Host a Murder, I'm assuming is what you were meant there. Yep. And uh, so why would you like to have something like this along? <laughs> well, this is a game that I just adore. And although it's not very replayable, each episode, I sort of thought if I had the whole series, boy, would that be a wonderful way to mark the holidays and have have something special that everyone could get into and have a great time. The host of murder games, um, they, they were great. I played them in the mid-80s, and there was a picture of Vincent Price on the cover, and he'd say, it's my favorite game, you know, it was like in, in this way that's so classic. And in this game, everyone sits down, and then you and you hear this professionally done audio recording of the setup for a murder. Somebody's been murdered, and you arrive to play this in costume, and um, you're playing a character in this. It's it is the game. It is the the analog game, short of of actual RPGs, which had the most role playing in it, and it was a wonderful role play without dice, without anything like that. You're just trying to figure out who the murderer is and get people not to focus on your crimes <laughs> uh, through social interaction, through conversation. So I thought it was always wonderful. You, you, it's a whole evening. There's three acts. In each act, you're given a pamphlet of new information that only you know. But other people have seen some things, and they'll try and question you on them. And you, you can't lie. You're not allowed to lie, but you can throw the question around. You can try to evade the question. You can do all sorts of things like I that. I read the murderer can lie. Oh, yeah. Okay. The, but the best thing is you don't know if you're the murderer until the end. Okay. Uh, it's only in the act three things that it'll say you are the murderer. Um, all the way up until then, um, you, you don't even know. And even when you know you're the murderer, you're still not allowed to lie. But you can throw. And, you know, people say, you know, did you kill X? 
that's a yes, no question. And you're not allowed to ask that question. There's a couple questions you're not allowed to ask. So you can't just get like, bang, go around the room and ask everyone, did you do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? You have to figure it out through real social role playing. So that's a, that's a treat game. And I, I just had to put it in there because I got so much joy playing that as a, as a kid. It was honestly a game for adults, but you know, kids love to do things that are out of their league. How many people do you need to, to do one of these? What, how does that work? I think it's six or eight. Okay. Six to eight. And the, the audio CD that comes with the game kind of plays referee for all that stuff. So you don't need a, everyone participates. You don't mm-hmm. need a game master who sits above it all. So folks have been playing games for a long time, but what role do you think gaming plays in today's society? Well, in today's society, I would say that um, gaming has really received a massive boost for two reasons. The first is that, and you and I are living proof here, Jim, that anyone can make a game now. It used to be that there was, you know, four people who worked at Milton Bradley who thought about new games and the rest of America just ate their TV dinners nicely and bought them. But now that's not the case anymore. If you want to make a game, and you did, Jim, uh, you can do it. And, um, and I did that too. And because of that, A, there's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful collection of games out there for people to play. You go to Tabletop Underground downtown, and the wall is filled with games that I want to play them all. So the diversity is wondering, but the diversity is also staggering, as diversity always is, and confusing as well. Uh, We're like, well, which game should I play? I mean, I I arrive at Tabletop Underground. If I was going to do that for a board game, I'd be like, wow, help me choose something here because I got – there's too much. And – so we're overwhelmed with choice these days. Everything is available to everybody. And that's wonderful. But it's also disconcerting in a, in a, in a certain way. And the problem is that for games, you kind of need a community to build around games. And until the sales of that game reaches a certain critical mass, and even in a given area, you don't have that community anymore. Everyone knows how to play Candyland. Everyone knows how to play checkers, more or less. Or I don't know if they still do, but they did back when I was a kid. And yet, you know, Wingspan wins incredible awards and is an incredible game, I'm sure, but I don't know how to play it because it's just another one of dozens of games to come out recently that people are like, oh, this is an amazing game. You should try it. So we're spoiled by choice, I would say. That's that's the state of things. Yeah, there's thousands of games published a year every year, and uh, it's, there's too many to to deal with. But yeah. but I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that you created a game, and uh, uh, you're involved with a gaming studio called Dreaming Door. Uh, tell us about that and and the game that you guys created. Yeah, I created Dreaming Door a few years ago. Um, I wanted it, it's been one of my lifelong dreams to create a video game. When I first started working at Sega of America. Uh, I started working there in 2001 after I graduated from college between undergrad and grad. And I met with the vice president of Sega of America, uh, whose name was uh, Jin Shimazaki. And um, I was in his office. I had got the interview because it, he was told that I spoke Japanese, which was, which was a good thing uh, there. And he asked me in Japanese, well, what, what would you like to do? What's, what's your dream? Tell me your dreams. And I said, I want to make my own game someday. And that really was a dream of mine. And so in 2015, at the age of 
you know, mid-late 30s, I decided it was time that I had matured enough that I was ready for the leadership challenges. I was ready for the um, philosophical challenges. I was ready to create something that expressed something worthwhile and didn't just parrot somebody else's uh, thing. And so I created a game called Golden Treasure. Um, the full title is Golden Treasure, The Great Green. And it's the story of the life of a dragon, which which is you when you play. You play as the dragon. And it's an exploration of life outside of a human body and outside of a human mind. And it's, it's an exploration of nature and all of the beauty that is there in every tree and every rock and every animal. And it's it was in some senses a call, a call for people to once again see the beauty of the natural world and to open their hearts to non-human beings. So it took a while. Um, I assembled a studio. People said, oh, you can't assemble a good studio in Michigan. You got to go to California, Silicon Valley, something like that. But I didn't believe that. So I recruited an incredible team, mostly from Southeast Michigan trade schools and universities. And I just went to the professors and I said, who are your great, really great programmers? You know, Because most of the people around here, they either, and by here I mean Michigan, they either have to leave to some other state to work in the games industry because there aren't many game companies here in uh, Michigan. There are a few, but not many. Uh, or they have to settle for some other type of programming and most do the latter. They just say, okay, I'm going to program for, you know, Kroger or whatever. And this was an opportunity for them to get into this industry, which they thought they never could. It, they call it living the dream. So I assembled a, a team of incredible, incredible, incredible people. And for years we created art and we created, you know, writing and eventually it all came together and we released the game in June of 2019, just this last June. It's been um, not as big of a success as I had hoped, largely for the reason that I mentioned. I mean, every game, every year, thousands of new games are, are released. But we sold thousands and thousands of copies. You know, I, we grossed, uh, I think, $50,000 in 2019, which um, could be worse, <laughs> you know? So I was pleased at its success. Just the other day, I discovered that there's whole online communities about this game. And I'm like, wow, I'm going online to find people doing art about the game and setting up role-playing games around this game and, and, and things like that. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's, it's wonderful. Even if I didn't, if we didn't sell tens of thousands of copies, there's at least hundreds of people whose heart we touched with this and they keep it rolling. They keep the interest going. How, how long had you had that kind of world or world building that you did in mind or what did, what did you, where did you start with all this? You know, even back when I was a kid, I loved pretending I was I was other things, and one of my favorite things to pretend I was was a dragon. So I really felt like it's interesting. You can put yourself in this mindset, which is very different from a human mindset, um, because dragons, and though of course dragons are perfect because we get to create dragons. We don't have to. Um, sync it up to anything. And I had read about dragons from all over the world in my in the course of my studies of world mythology. So I'd heard of Persian stories of dragons and 
Chinese stories of dragons and South American stories of dragons and European stories of dragons. And they all portray dragons as these intelligent yet not social uh, creatures. And that was often how I felt as a kid, you know? And so there was, there was this connection from early on and dragons became the perfect vehicle for me to tell a new story with Golden Treasure. And really, Golden Treasure is a role-playing experience from me to the player. It's like a one-on-one role-playing. And, I, and most people who play it say, yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels like I'm playing a role-playing game. It's a solo role-playing game, but it's, but it's a very deep one, a very beautiful one, I, I like to think. Great. Um, so what, when you're designing that or just in general, what makes for, what's the main ingredient for your kind of favorite experience while gaming? Is it aesthetics or winning the interaction with other folks? It's learning, Okay. learning a new perspective, learning a new, it could even be a new fact. A lot of the game's encounters are encounters with wild animals of various kinds in, in which they express their philosophy on life. And like, what is a squirrel's philosophy? That was a, it was really fun for me to go through every animal, and there's like 50 animals in the game, and create whole cultures for them that were based around the way they live and what they believe in. And, um, you know, what is the relation? How do squirrels see trees? You know, there are homes and they are saviors and they are all these kinds of things. So, you know, I have the, the squirrel saying, we are the people of the thousand vertical empires, you know, like, and that, that feeling of a new perspective, a new idea is addictive to me. And that's what I, I hope that playing that game delivers to people, a new perspective. They go, wow, I never thought of life that way. What would it be like to live in something that people never thought of living like before, like a wild boar? What would it be like to be part of this wild boar uh lifestyle where you get where you have like this elder matriarch who who has all all the children and the and the women un, under her control and they're they're doing the slow moving through the forest consuming resources things or or you could be one of these lone males that's searching for the feast lands and like you you never know one of these one of these things could strike a chord with people's own life and say you know in my life I see things like or maybe I want to live more this way in my life so that's what I tried to fill the game with, these moments of discovery, exploration. That's the feeling. And, you, you know, something that you said earlier that's very important here is that right now we have this feeling that science has kind of mapped everything out. There's not much left to explore, which is why in the last century we've talked so much about going into space and, you know, all these, the final frontier things, because we're desperate for a new frontier. And that's... A problem when we think we don't have anything left to discover. So part of this is there is more to discover here, inside, within. I, not scientific facts about, you know, lemurs or whatever, but we can still learn from our fellow citizens of Earth. We can still learn, and by which I mean every animal. Uh, we can still learn from trees. We can learn from all these sorts of things. They're all teaching us all the time. Wisdom cries out. Uh, from the street corners and nobody hears her. That's from um, that's from the Tanakh, and uh, I believe that. I believe that. So I was hoping to bring a little bit of that wisdom that cries out to people into a game and, and to cry out to them 
in a way that maybe they could hear and maybe that they would want to hear and they, they would feel good about in the end. So your last game uh, or type of game here that we're going to talk about allows you to do that, get into somebody else's skin, and that is role-playing games. So what when, what drew you to role-playing games in the beginning, uh, and how what did you play at the beginning, and how did you get into that? I don't believe there's anybody on the face of the earth who's never role-played. I don't. I think every single human being has role-played. We call it playing pretend when we're little. But even that isn't something that you need to tell a little child, like, let's play pretend. They're always ready to do it. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, you, you, we wouldn't have to say, let's play this. We, I, I'd show up and, you know, we'd be jumping off of, of a couch at, at, at my, you know, my Japanese friend's home. And suddenly she'd be, I'm a bat. I'd be, okay, and then suddenly we'd be bats, you know, and that's role playing. And so everyone does it. It's just that most people stop uh, eventually. And I don't see any reason to stop something like that. I think that it's extremely wonderful. I think that it's open. And the, my, my fourth choice I said there was a role-playing game, any role-playing game, I would say, almost. Because I never want to stop trying on new skins, as you said. I never want to stop trying to find new perspectives and new things to be. Because... With science telling, oh, we've already discovered everything. Now we have to look inside. Now we have to say, but what else is there to discover in me? And when you role play, when you become, you know, a brave barbarian uh, fighter in, if that's the kind of game that you're playing, that's something that definitely you don't get to act like in the normal world. But there's something that's valid about about that if you're doing it right, because we all used to be barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was shocked when I played some of these incredible games like King of Dragon Pass that instead of, you know, bringing you to the Conan style of Barbarian, brought you to the actual style of Barbarian, or this is life in the Bronze Age, uh, how familiar it felt and how healthy it felt in some ways. I'm like, oh, this is our past. This is what we were. And so through role-playing, you can discover your past. You can discover all sorts of things. And that's... That's why I, I put role-playing game on the fourth. That's something that you could do forever. You know, it, it never, never, never waxes old. So could you talk a little bit about some experiences you've had that, that were exceptional uh, while doing role-playing games? Oh, sure. When I moved to Berkeley, uh, California, between undergrad and grad, they had a, a, a LARP going on. And for those who don't know, LARP stands for live action role playing. This is where you dress the part and you show up. Uh, we were in a live action uh, game that met just under the Berkeley Bell Tower every Saturday, and there were maybe 50 people in it. And the game that we were playing was based off of uh, sort of a modern. Uh, Take it's called Gothic Punk. Um, it, it's a called the World of Darkness, and it's essentially a sort of a darker take on our modern world, where there's vampires and werewolves and sort of things like that. Um, and this particular one was mostly about werewolves. And even though I was brand new among fifty people, in the course of two years, I rose all the way up to being the alpha, being in charge of everything. And I basically. I wound up over the course of those two years saving the world and leading the whole. Thank the you whole for plan. that. 
Thank you for saving the world. Oh yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, I'm I'm not quite sure I did the right thing uh, these days, uh, but um, but yeah, I, w- I wound up in the course of that game saving the world, and it was a deeply. It's because it's something I'd worked for years to try to do, and I felt very very connected, both socially and I would say mythically, to all the people around me. That was a, a really wonderful experience. That live action kind of thing brings it to yet another level. But I don't think it's necessary. I think all that's really necessary is a good op- imagination and open mind. Well, that's great. Well, my n- normal last formal question is uh, the snowmobile on its way to wherever you are had to cross a river on its way and hit a far bank and three of your games bounced out and were washed <laughs> downstream. Uh, so if there was one of these that you would have to pick to get stuck in Snowmageddon with, what would it be? You know, I, I immediately my mind went, it's between chess and role-playing. And in the end, I would probably say chess um, because I could do role-playing. I could probably put that together even if I didn't have the source material. I could reconstruct it. Um it would be a little harder to reconstruct chess, although not impossible. Um, but I think that that chess is the one that I'd want to have physically there. And, and, and if that's the question, physicality, I'd say chess, the perfect balance between complexity and simplicity right there. Yeah, that's great. So how if folks wanted to find out more about you or your projects, um, is there some place out on the interwebs that they could find out about that? Yep. If you are on te- interweb nets, the webs, you can go to www.dreamingdoor.net, all one word. And there you can see screenshots from the game, elements of it. But more importantly, you can also download the free demo, uh, which allows you to play through the entire first act of the game. It's hours and hours of gameplay just as it as it is. And if you like it and you buy it, you can keep your progress. So uh, I would absolutely encourage it. It's free. You got no reason not to. And I think anybody listening to this might really enjoy the experience of being a dragon once in your life. I recommend it to everyone. You should at least try it. Super. Well, Benjamin Ludwig, thank you very much for being here on Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon. And thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon. Thanks again for to Benjamin for being a good sport. Uh, this podcast was recorded at the studios of Traverse Area Community Media in Traverse City, Michigan, which are available to everyone. So to find out more, go to tacm.tv. This nice music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode is sponsored by Archipelago Creative, LLC, makers of Mackinac Island card and board games at mackinawtreasure.com. Look for more episodes of this podcast at anchor.fm slash game in snow. If you have any comments about this show or want to suggest or be a guest, please email me at gameinsnow at gmail.com. I'm Jim Moratsky. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>